podcast one production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to Agriminders. In part one of this episode, looking at genetic modification as a tool for increasing food and fibre production, we explored the fear that people had about using genetic modification as a means of changing something that we're eating or injecting into ourselves. But why is that also an issue for something that we wear as clothing? And in part two, we're going to explore that with an agriminder who has been a world leader in genetic modification, but particularly in the area of making cotton grow without the use of huge amounts of pesticides, which are extremely toxic and may not even be available if it hadn't been needed for use on that crop. It's been done using an organism which normally would have no way of getting its genes into the cotton plant, a bacteria. And by splicing the genes from the bacteria into the cotton plant, they've been able to make that cotton plant poisonous to a bug that would otherwise completely destroy that crop. Dr Danny Llewellyn is a chief research scientist with the CSIRO and he's been involved actively in plant biotechnology for over 35 years and particularly in cotton. Danny has worked all over the world in this emerging area of plant genetic engineering and now that he's come back to Australia, he's using transgenic plants for the first time to study the basic aspects of plant gene regulation. In the 1980s, he moved back into the area of cotton production and particularly into the testing of genetically modified trays for insect and herbicide tolerance with a large range of multinational companies. He first did the field testing of GM cotton in Australia, closely working with the CSIRO and so that we could turn those trays of insect resistance into full commercial production. His research was pioneering in helping the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator to define and validate the things that they needed to test and be convinced about before they would allow GM trays to be introduced into Australia for commercial release. Dr Llewellyn still maintains an active research program in the development of the next generation of traits that we will want to incorporate into Australian cotton production and he is an experienced advisor for the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator. So, Danny, why has it been so hard to make use of a technology which effectively is not much different to putting a hand in the lotto drum and lifting out the six numbers you want rather than hoping they'll fall out the bottom? I guess the main impediment to GM technology spreading from some of our sort of non-food crops into food crops has been the public perceptions that there may be some dangers in, in eating genetically modified foods. I think one of the real problems there is that, you know, we've been growing these GM crops now for 20 years, but that same perception still seems to persist. So we've had the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator, or the OGTR, that's been brought into Australia under our management of, of genetically modified crops. How effective has that been in being able to streamline unnecessary bureaucracy with these? Uh, I think they've done an exceptional job and I think the OGTR is really the example of gene regulation throughout the world. It's very open and it's transparent. Members of the public can 
obtain access to all the documents that they look at, except for where there's some commercial inconfidence that needs to be kept within the system. But yes, I think it, it's, a, it's a very effective and uh, clearly it's a system that's working. Well, I mean, overseas, if you go to Asia, there's a classic example of submergent-resistant rice where the gene to make our cultivars of rice that produce grain more resistant to long monsoonal rains or whatever was discovered in India in the early 90s. And yet because we weren't, you know, permitted by regulation to to, to grow a crop where we spliced the gene in, we had to wait until we bred it in by Mendelian breeding and it took us probably 15 years. And in that time, we had, what, two or three famines. And I mean, that, and the end result was exactly the same, surely. Yeah, I think that that's very true. I think uh, the advantages of the GM technologies is that they can speed up the process of, of breeding new varieties or new types of plants. I think there's still sufficient either scepticism or uh, fear within the public that that process is is too quick. And I think that's been sort of promulgated by all sorts of uh, movies and those sorts of things, which really, I think, we've been working very hard over the last 20 years to try and educate the public, but uh, it hasn't had a great deal of success. So what are the most common um, misnomers, misconceptions that are associated with GM technology that create that fear, Danny? Well, I think there's a couple of them. I think one is the rise of the environmental movement. There's a, a, a big perception that by rapidly changing crops to be more tolerant to insect pests or to have other properties that are useful in an agronomic sense, if those genes escaped into wild relatives that they would have large impacts on the environment if they escaped into to relatives of the crop plants. But that hasn't been the case. I think we've had 20 years of uh, experience now with GM crops and those sorts of scenarios have, have never eventuated and I think many scientists never really thought that they would happen in the first place. So that sort of GM flow you're talking about where you get something bleeds into a naturally occurring crop, but, I mean, a lot of the crops where we've used GM, they don't have any natural equivalents that it could flow into. Yeah, most of them don't, and there are some examples where there are sort of wild populations of the species that we do grow where there, there could be such a risk, but that's all part of the process of registration of new crops with GM traits in them that we do look at the potential for this and whether the, the risks outweigh the benefits that might accrue from that. So let's just talk a, look at your specialty area, and that is cotton growing. Now, that's probably been one of the great success stories. Um, we used to pour horrible chemicals onto these crops, organophosphates, organochlorides, trying to kill the various uh, bugs and weevils and so on that used to invade that cotton and then by being able to splice the gene out of a little bacteria which has a long name of Bacillus syringensis but I think we call it BT you know we're able to solve that problem how how successful has that been and what is the longevity of that contribution to cotton production well that that's had, that's been very successful the australian industry when i first started to work in cotton back in the the 80s was really in a sort of a death spiral, really, in terms of using chemical pesticides and the insects developing resistance and then the, the farmers having to spray even higher doses or more toxic combinations of pesticides. 
So even at that stage when the cotton industry was really one of the smaller by area industries in Australia, it was one of the largest users of chemical pesticides. With the adoption of GM technologies and now every cotton plant that's grown in Australia contains resistance to insect pests, mainly the caterpillar pests that attack cotton, that's now reduced the spraying of chemical pesticides over 90% and in many cases many farmers don't have to spray to kill the, the main caterpillar pests in cotton, although occasionally they still need to spray to to kill some of the sucking pests, the sort of aphids and myrids and those sorts of pests. But it's it's had an enormous impact on both the sustainability and on the productivity of Australian cotton. In terms of longevity, it's been an ongoing venture. Uh, 1996 released the first cotton which contained a, a single insecticidal gene and over the following years we've now up to having the cotton with three different insecticidal genes. And the idea of that is that it stops the, or at least minimises the potential for the caterpillars developing resistance to all three different uh, insecticidal proteins at the same time. So I think it's an ongoing thing, as in conventional plant breeding, you're never quite finished. Uh, GM is not a, a magic bullet, it's not going to last forever, but uh, Australian farmers are doing the best that they can to ensure that those um, sort of triple insecticidal stacks uh, last well into the future and they're doing that in a number of ways also uh, just by using the, the multiple genes together but also by altering their management of the crop so that they can uh, ensure that those uh, insecticidal traits last for many years into the future. So without getting into too much deep science, how did they actually do it? Did they actually literally cut a bit of gene out of this bacterial chromosome and then splice it into a cotton plant gene? Or what did they actually do? I must point out in this case that this is not something that we developed ourselves. So we've uh, licensed in these insecticidal genes from a, a larger multinational company, which was the Monsanto company, which is now Bayer. Uh, Around the 80s, when I first started working in cotton, we were all trying to do that, to take the genes out of the bacteria and splice them into the cotton plants. But we discovered that they didn't work very well. We couldn't get enough of the insecticidal protein produced to actually kill the caterpillars. And so some Monsanto scientists developed a way of, of modifying the genes. So they basically resynthesized the genes, so remade them in a test tube and then inserted them into the cotton plant and the changes that they made to the bacterial gene, even though it makes, still makes the same uh, identical protein that's found in the bacteria, allowed it to be expressed at much higher levels in the plant. And so then they were able to, to kill the caterpillars that, that fed on the plant. So when the plant grows, it actually creates this poisonous protein in its leaf without having to spray it with anything? Yeah. And why, why, why doesn't that kill other insects like the ladybirds and so on, which we're trying to preserve now that we don't have to spray them with organophosphates? Well, that's, that's one of the key advantages of these insecticidal protein genes that occur in the bacteria. The bacteria occur naturally in the soil and the same species of bacteria may contain a host of different variants of those insecticidal genes and some of those are uh, toxic to caterpillars, some of those are toxic to beetles, some to flies. 
So by choosing the right particular gene and matching that up with the pest species that you're trying to control, you can put a gene into the plants that only kills that particular type of insect. And the other area, I suppose, which has been uh, a very high profile in the GM technology has been these so-called Roundup-ready crops where you breed, uh, you, you make the plant so that it, the crop that you're trying to grow resistant to being killed by Roundup or glyphosate and then when you've done that, you can spray it for the weeds and the, the chemical will kill the weeds but doesn't kill the plant. How's that one work in particular? Well, that one works by uh, glyphosate, which is the herbicide, is a chemical that binds to a specific enzyme in the uh, plant, which is involved in making some of the amino acids that are needed to make proteins. So by taking a gene out of a bacteria that had been selected to no longer bind to that herbicide and putting that, splicing it into the plants and having it expressed there, when you spray the plant with uh, glyphosate now, the enzyme that's normally in the, in the plant is turned off or inhibited by the, the herbicide, but the new splice gene that you've put in there produces the protein that's resistant to it, and so that allows the plant to uh, continue to uh, produce its proteins, the amino acids it needs for its protein production, and, and continue to grow. So that's been fraught with problem in getting that into Australia. You know, people have fought and resisted and they're worried about that gene getting into the wild weed population. Are those fears justified or are we just being paranoid again? Again, it's the same situation with, you know, genes escaping into wild relatives. If you choose the right crops, then the potential for escape into wild relatives is really minimised. It's only in situations where you're actually spraying glyphosate that even if the genes did escape into a weed, that that would cause any problem. And in those cases, then you might have to rotate herbicides. So in fact, um, we're working in cotton. Uh, we have uh, other herbicides. So we're currently introducing herbicides for a, a different um, a, a resistance for a different herbicide called glyphosinate and also another one called dicamba. So that then will give the farmers the option to rotate use of different herbicides rather than relying purely on glyphosate. Because that's been a problem in the US that this Roundup resistance to glyphosate has been put into several different crops, into corn, into cotton, into soybean, into canola. And so they're starting to see that if you overuse glyphosate, you select for weeds that are either naturally tolerant to glyphosate or you select for mutations in weeds that no longer allow the, the glyphosate to kill them. And so in, in certain situations in the US, they're having all sorts of problems with some other weeds like uh, Palmer amaranth. And so by introducing these other herbicide traits, that allows you to rotate the herbicides and control some of these other problem weeds. So this is all, a lot of this is about the fact that if you just focus on one thing... They quickly get resistant and then that tool gets useless. Whereas if you rotate it, you just start to get resistance and then you hit it with some different type of product and, and in fact, the other herbicide that you originally were having problems with could come back into use. Yeah. What crops have we been allowed to do in Australia with this Roundup Ready technology? So at the moment, it's only cotton and canola. Uh, they're really our only two GM crops that are grown 
here in Australia, uh, whereas overseas there's corn and soybean and they're starting to put it into lucerne and into a number of um, turf grass species. And what about things like nitrogen-efficient plants and plants that can work better in minimum tillage conditions? You know, what have we been allowed to introduce into Australia in that area? Um, well, the use of glyphosate is important in minimum till agriculture in cotton as well. So we haven't been able to put these herbicide traits into some of our other broadacre crops like wheat. Uh, the public's not really ready to accept that yet but that may come over time. But one of the important things about using these GM traits is that you have to do it with a combination of the genetics, but also the management that you use for those systems. So we've been very successful in this. We haven't had those problems with Roundup resistant weeds in cotton, for example, because we also introduce a package of sort of integrated weed management that goes with the Roundup Ready cotton and that's really prevented the development of resistance weed problems in, in cotton at least. So Danny, another tray of plants is that some plants um, you know, we're all familiar with the greenness of plants, which is the photosynthesis, which is turning sunlight and water, if you like, into food for the plant to live off. And some plants are a lot better at, at and more efficient at doing that than others. And they have what they call this C4 gene, which make, make some plants grow very vigorously and much more quickly than others. We had any luck in putting that gene into crops that we grow commercially that we could actually get a lot more production out of in that way, like wheat, for example? No, we haven't yet, but that's a very active research area around the world. And in fact, the, um, the Gates Foundation, which is the philanthropic uh, body set up by Bill and Melinda Gates, they are funding an international uh, program to try and put those... Um, that more efficient photosynthesis into some of our other main crops. I think they're, they're starting to have some traction in that area, but it's, it's quite a complex thing to do, and uh, there are many different steps that have to be changed. It's not a single gene like the insect and herbicide genes. It's much more complex than that. And so I think that's one of the areas that I think, you know, there's a big focus on some of those big questions of can we change the photosynthetic efficiency of plants there are groups working on whether they can make plants fix nitrogen rather than relying on sort of nodulation by bacteria that occurs in the, in the legumes. And there are also groups working on trying to make what are called apomictic plants, plants that produce seed without sexual recombination. So that can fix some of the uh, benefits of we see with hybrids in uh, various species. All very clever, isn't it? They're all very clever, but they're also all very complex and uh, very difficult to do. And so those things require large international groups to, to tackle those problems together. So, Danny, in our focus, if you like, of all this green technology, because this is all so clever, has the focus been on increasing food production, on increasing profitability, on improving climatic uh, issues? How have you decided which technologies to go for? I think most of the decisions made so far have been about uh, tackling, I guess, specific issues in specific crops. So, for example, the, the cases of cotton, 
Uh, it's the insect and weed control that are really limiting production. So these are, are traits that are really protecting the uh, yield potential of the crops that we already have. So that's one area that's been uh, easy. And I guess that's really the low-hanging fruit. They're the easier ones to do, even though, again, it took 10 years to develop the first GM plants with uh, insect protection from the, the BT toxins. And I think people are starting to focus now on some of the other challenges, which are more, more generic challenges. So we know we're going to run out of petroleum, we're, we're running out of synthetic fertilisers and all those sorts of things. So they're the bigger challenges that are facing uh, global agriculture in the coming years. And so I guess the focus is really shift to some of those more complex problems that really need to be tackled in a team way rather than by, by individual groups just doing it. So there are a number of farmers, Danny, that have been complaining that in America the large companies over there can afford to do this work and also jump the regulatory hurdles. And so they've got crops, as you've said, like corn, soya, uh, alfalfa or lucerne as we call it here, sugar beets, which we don't grow, and canola. But those crops are all in America where our, our wheat belt crops, you know, our cereal crops, we're still, there's not that much difference between the production we're getting now per acre or per, per hectare and what we had 30 or 40 years ago. I mean, we've improved certain characteristics of them with Mendelian breeding, you know, rust resistance and, and resistance to lodging and all those things. But in terms of production, whereas they've seen a tenfold increase in production of things like corn in America, we've said nothing like that here with our cereal crops. So we, we've really been at a disadvantage in not having a big enough incentive for the, far, for the big companies to put their time into some of our crops. Yeah, no, that is, is an issue. And, and we see the same thing in cotton, that cotton is an important crop for us here in Australia. But in the US, it is an important crop, but it's sort of dwarfed by corn and soybean. So to get the, the big companies to focus their efforts around cotton is even more difficult than uh, it probably should be. But things like wheat, the real challenge again here is, is to get public acceptance of genetic modification. We had hoped that there is a, a new technology that's uh, just starting to come through, which is called genome editing or gene editing, in which you use genetic modification techniques to, in a very targeted way, to change the genetic makeup of plants. Now, in the US, they've already started to produce some gene-edited um, foods. So there's a non-browning mushroom that they've developed. And that's been considered to be, even though it was developed using GM techniques, the final product is similar to what you can achieve just by classical mutagenesis or selection of variants. And so in the US, it's considered as a, a non-GM trait and doesn't require regulation. So we're hoping that a lot of those techniques can be used in a lot of our food crops where the public still has some concerns about uh, genetic modification. And already the OGTR has looked at that issue here in Australia and they are recommending that as long as it's a simple change and it can, it's identical to what could be achieved by mutagenesis, that they're recommending that it be considered as non-GM. But that still has to go through all of the parliamentary systems to change the Gene Regulation Act here in Australia. So that's still a, a few years away. So it's, it's hoped that we can apply some of those techniques to alter the properties of some of our cereal crops. 
So what's the difference between gene editing and gene splicing or cutting bits out and putting them in somewhere else? What's the difference? Uh, the difference is that there's nothing that stays in the plant. So when we do genetic modification, we add new genetic material in, but genome edit or gene editing allows you to introduce those genes that do the, the changes. Basically, it, it cuts the DNA in a very specific place that in the gene that you're targeting. And then there's a natural repair process that isn't always perfect, so it can make some mistakes. And by screening through the, the plants that you get, you find the ones that have had the, the repair occur in the way that you want it to either alter the uh, amino acid or the protein structure of the, the gene that you're after, or to make it non-functional. Uh, in many cases, you can manipulate physiological or biochemical properties of the, the organism by switching off specific genes that uh, may produce something that you don't want in the plant. So it's a bit like cross-pollinating a crop and then watching to see which plant grows up for any reason differently and then selecting that, only in this case you're, you're not waiting for it just to happen by natural mutation, you're, you're actually determining it. Yeah, and you're targeting it specifically and so that gives it a much more um, controllable effect on the plants. And, but in Europe, my understanding is that they have actually said that is GM and therefore it does come under the same rules as GM. Why would we be any different here? Yeah, well, that, that was actually something that surprised everyone. I think um, that was one judge in a, in a high court ruling in the, in the EU and it uh, did cause a, a lot of disappointment. But Europe has been the main block that has been opposed to conventional GM, but the, all of the traditional GM, the insect and the herbicide traits, for many years Europe had a ban on the importation of, of products produced using genetic modification. In many cases more for political reasons and for imposing trade barriers and trying to get advantages for European farmers. But in many ways, those farms now have missed out on a lot of the benefits that GM technologies have given in, in other countries around the world. So I think GM has been a classic example of old Walt Disney's saying we've used before in this series that the customer's not always right, but the customer's always the customer, and the customer perceives something is wrong. As far as the consumer is concerned, it is wrong, and it doesn't matter what the scientists say, uh, it makes it very difficult. And, and uh, you know, I think that's really got the potential to be a real handbrake on producing this additional food that we need to do over the next 50 years. Yes, and that, that's very true. And even here in Australia, that's occurring. So GM canola is now grown in New South Wales and Victoria, but all of the, they were all approved by the OGTR and the other regulatory agencies, the uh, Food Standards Australia New Zealand and the APVMA, as being safe to grow in Australia. But a number of the states imposed moratoria on the growing of those GM crops in, in their particular states. And that wasn't because of safety concerns. That was that they hoped to be able to get some economic benefit out of being GM-free and selling into Europe. But that hasn't really turned out to be the case. And, and I think South Australia is reviewing its decision to, to put that moratorium on, and uh, a number of the states have stopped those moratoria. But there are still a couple of states that are, are still not allowing the growth of GM crops in their, in their particular state. 
Well, Dr. Danny Llewellyn, thank you very much for giving us the benefit of your many, many years of working in this area. Um, we wish you well. I think it is a key tool and uh, we appreciate your being our AgriMinder today. You're welcome. So in this episode, we've now heard from two global and Australian experts on the use of genetic modification in Australian agriculture. There is no doubt that it has been a valuable tool, but there's equally no doubt that it's been much maligned and feared in an almost bizarre way by the consuming population. So the question remains in most people's minds, is it the baby or is it the bathwater? Is it the baby that is actually going to be a significant tool in producing all that extra food we need over the next 50 years? Or is it actually the bathwater? Is the risk of genetically tinkering with nature so great and so much greater than picking things out of the wild that we're actually happy to throw this very valuable tool out with the bathwater? Join me again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.